All right, Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. We are looking at Jesus under arrest today. As we looked at uh, Matthew's gospel, we've uh, consistently seen in the life of Jesus that he is the master of every situation that he's in. He always knows what he's doing. He's never at a loss. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we saw last time, as distressed and as agonizing as his emotions were, he was never off or out of control or losing his way. Now, there are a few occasions in the Gospels where Jesus expresses amazement and wonder, especially when he sees great faith turn up in unexpected places. He could be surprised. So we know that he wasn't walking through life with every detail descriptive for him that he knew about. I mean, in his role as the bond servant, as a man, he chose to self-limit his divine knowledge. He did not have immediate access to all that God knows by choice. He made that choice. Though his deity was not diminished in any way, um, not in his person. So the person of Jesus was at all times still the creator of all things, and the Lord. But in taking the role of a bondservant, he humbled himself and functioned as a human being. Now, in some ways, Jesus' life was scripted. I mean, it was foreordained by the Father in, in all of its details. God is sovereign over everything. And certainly many key events in his life were ordered by prophecy written beforehand. And those prophecies were meticulously fulfilled by Jesus, sometimes intentionally. Um, other times it just seems to have happened. At other times, um, plans or events were revealed to Jesus by the Holy Spirit, much as a prophet might receive knowledge that could only be obtained by supernatural means. But while all that is true, he did not, in the Incarnation, know everything that would happen on a given day. He was tested by situations he did not expect and saw things that surprised him. Still, when you look at the last days, this last week of Jesus' life, especially the last 24 hours, everything seems to be preordained and he knows about it. It seems like all the events are laid before him, probably by direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. But he continually refers to the need to fulfill Scripture in each of the events that seem to happen. And he submits his life and his will to do just that. And it's clear that he's in charge. I mean, he knows about his betrayal. He even tells Judas when it was time to go out and do his wicked deed. He knows the Passover meal is the last meal that he will have before his death. He knows the details of his coming treatment at the hands of the authorities. He knows he's going to be flogged, scourged, crucified. But through it all, he never loses control. And when we look at the gospel accounts of Jesus' arrest, which we're going to talk about this morning, it's not always clear who's arresting whom. I mean, Jesus seems to be giving most of the orders, placing himself in the hands of his enemies. If there ever was a situation where events could really get ugly or out of control, it was that moment of his arrest. Jesus wasn't um, some typical criminal or pest uh, being taken into custody. He was the leader, as far as the temple leaders were concerned in the Roman authorities, Jesus was the leader of a movement. And he was popular and had a band of men that were regularly at his side. And not a few people believed he was the Messiah. Remember on Palm Sunday, he was welcomed into Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna, son of David. There were messianic titles being called out for him. So, he, And he was so popular that the high priests and the leaders of the Pharisees would not arrest him openly. 
not in daylight, not in the temple. Uh, they had decided, in fact, not to arrest Jesus at all during the Passover festival. They were going to wait till that was done and people were going home and then try to get him. But God wanted Jesus to die on Passover because he is the great Passover lamb. He's, that he's the fulfillment of the Passover sacrifice. So the leadership had to change their plans. So in God's providential rule, a traitor steps forward, his heart utterly wicked, but his deed a fulfillment of God's program and plan. So the authorities, now with the means to take Jesus by night, having this traitor to guide them, they change their minds unknowingly fitting in with what God wanted them to do. And so, because they must, uh, events proceed as they did and as they're recorded here. So while Jesus and his disciples go to a garden where Jesus prays while the men sleep, Judas is off in the company of the temple leaders, the priests and the leaders of the Pharisees, who are collecting a large company of soldiers to take Jesus. And they arrive in Gethsemane when Jesus tells the disciples in verse 45 of Matthew 26, that's where we are, verse 45, Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Then verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So they arrive. It is, Matthew says, a, a large crowd. It's not some small detail. A couple of cops and a police dog uh, come to arrest Jesus, but, but a significant show of force. Clearly, the leaders were concerned that Jesus might attempt to slip away and his disciples put up a fight for him. So to really understand how Jesus is controlling the events surrounding his arrest, we should look first at John's Gospel. So if you want to turn there to John chapter 18, it might help. There's some details there that are really important. So John chapter 18, in verse 3, it says, Judas then, having received a Roman cohort... And officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So there were apparently Roman soldiers in some numbers attached to the temple police to help arrest Jesus. Now the word Roman is not actually in the Greek text of John, but the word cohort is, and that's a Roman term for a battalion, basically. Uh, a Roman battalion would be 480 men. Of course, a uh, Probably some of them are staying in the fortress of Antonia, so probably not the entire cohort is coming out, but maybe a hundred men or a couple hundred men, uh, a significant number of Roman soldiers might be accompanying Judas and the temple guards, if you will, their, their little force. But it's a substantial body. Then John mentions this really amazing thing, which he doesn't explain at all, and I can't wait to see the home movies in heaven for it, but in verse 4 it says, So Jesus, knowing all these things were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's pretty amazing. Uh, I would like to have seen that. This, this small army sort of collapses, and these soldiers find themselves on the ground. 
And I think we're supposed to see this as a supernatural shove or a pull down or something. But uh, this power that pushed or pulled them um, comes when Jesus says, I am. And he really, that is what he says. Um, my translation, New American Standard, it says, I am he. Uh, you can translate these words, I am he, but you have to supply the word he. The words are um, famous in, in John's Gospel especially, ego eimi, I am. And that's God's name. And that uh, John's Gospel is the I am Gospel. That, that phrase keeps showing up throughout the Gospel, connected to different ways of Jesus proclaiming his divinity. I'm the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Those kind of things. Probably the most famous and the most important is John 8:58, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born... I am, ego eimi, exactly the same words we see here in John chapter 18, um, both in verse 5 and verse 6. So I believe there was divine power accompanying that declaration, I am, using the name of God to, de uh, to declare himself. And that's why they went down, I think. Verse 7, it says, therefore he asked them again, whom do you seek? Kind of getting their attention again, and they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. So what's going on here? Jesus has another prophecy to fulfill. He must go alone and he has to protect his men. So whom do you seek is Jesus' way of protecting the disciples. Because those soldiers and the temple guard are not on a mission to collect Peter and James and John or any of the other guys. They're there for Jesus. That's why he says, whom do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene. So that excludes from the mission list, if you will, what their job is when they come to him. And that is going to protect the disciples. So he is having the authorities say it so they won't get caught up in sort of a sweep arresting everybody there. Well, as we all know, the chief priests had already arranged a way to identify Jesus so the officers could not be fooled. So the traitor, Judas, uh, would identify him with a kiss of friendship. So now we can go back to Matthew chapter 26 and, and look at that part of the story. It's very interesting that here again, just like the Last Supper, uh, Judas calls Jesus rabbi. Almost always the disciples call Jesus Lord, um, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't do it at the Last Supper and he doesn't do it here. Matthew 26, uh, 48, Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. Uh, the utter shamelessness of Judas. It really shows the contempt that he had for Jesus. Satan really had entered into him. I mean, Luke 22, 3 says that. That, that happened at the Last Supper, Satan entered into him. And Judas seems to have really wanted his betrayal to hurt Jesus, uh, to be in your face as much as possible. It's not a sweet thing. It's not a remorseful thing. He's, uh, he's awful. It was, it was his idea to identify Jesus that particular way. And he wanted Jesus to know how thoroughly he had rejected him as his Messiah, his Lord, his his. He wanted Jesus to know how disdainful he was of Jesus. Uh, of Jesus' weakness is probably why he, uh, how he perceived it. 
Jesus being weak, and so he was giving up on him, and he wanted Jesus to get it in the face. So Luke tells us Jesus asked him a question. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And we aren't told if Judas said anything, but Matthew quotes other words of Jesus, which remind us of his desire to go forward. So G Luke tells us that Jesus said, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Matthew tells us in verse 50, he says, friend, do what you have come for. Friend. I really wonder if those words pierced Judas's heart, because he is going to be regretful later. Maybe that Maybe that broke in a little bit. We aren't told. Then verse 50 says, Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So they've got their hands on him. The eleven are really agitated by that action. And Luke tells us that as a group, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, Peter, it turns out, Matthew doesn't mention his name, but he's the most impetuous one, of course. He doesn't wait for an answer to that question. He draws his short sword and just goes for the nearest head. Just whack. Verse 51, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, the slave's name was Malchus. John tells us that. And I think we can safely assume that Peter was not aiming at Malchus's ear. Um, no, Malchus probably saw it coming and had good reflexes. <laughs> Peter wanted to split his skull open, but uh, his ear does go flying. And that was the moment when everything could have gone wild. Think about all that's going on in our culture right now and all the demonstrations and police. And, um, you know, if you took off one of the police officer's ears, how do you think they're going to react to that? How do you think they're going to feel? So things could have gotten really ugly, really quick for everyone right there. Um, that's basically a declaration of um, war on, on these uh, arresting officers in this particular case. So I don't know what quality of men the temple guard were, how professional they were. I assume that they were some of the best in Israel, but the Romans were experienced and disciplined, and uh, they knew what they were doing, but they could be really merciless if you uh, got them on your bad side. So um, they didn't have all kinds of uh, constitutional rights uh, governing a lot of what they did here. So it really can only be the dignity and the bearing and the voice of the Lord Jesus when he speaks, uh, maybe with his reputation mixed into all of that, that really stopped this from turning into a slaughter. Um, but whatever the dynamics were, he spoke and, and they listened. Verse 52, he speaks to Peter, and I'm sure everybody there can hear it. Jesus is being held when he says this. Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Well, those words are very well known. They have incredible implications. They have uh, echoed down through the many centuries of Christianity since then. Sometimes they've been ignored or misunderstood or misapplied. Um, they're very important words. Had, had church history been characterized in certain eras by a love for the scriptures, and, and these words in particular, history would be quite different. That's not to say using a sword is always wrong or inherently sinful, but scripture is very clear about this. Governments, governments are granted the right to use the sword. God gives them that right to establish justice. And that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter um, 9. 
and carries straight through the New Testament all the way up to Romans chapter 13, verse 4, where Paul says, government, quote, um, it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So the government is God's avenger. It says that twice, that it's a, a minister of God. It's God's, God is the avenger through government, and government is his vengeance on the wicked. So the word sword, of course, refers to the power to kill. The government has that power, of course, to do it justly and lawfully and all of that, but they do have that power. Capital punishment, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 tells us, is good because it affirms the value of a human life. The Bible says if a man sheds another man's blood, take kills him, then his life is to be shed, his blood is to be shed, because in the image of God he made man. So that image it makes us valuable. So it's not the same killing a horse or a cow or a duck as it is killing a human being. You forfeit your life when you take the life of a human being, biblically speaking. So that affirms the dignity of human life. So governments have that right, and they are God's avengers against um, that kind of violence in the world. It keeps civilization functional. Governments have the right of defense in war as well. It's just all throughout the Old Testament and the New. And individuals have a right of self-defense as well. In fact, the law, Exodus chapter 22, verse 2, it says, If a thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there's no blood guiltiness on his account. So if a guy's breaking into your house and you shoot him, don't do it here because that's not true in our culture. But in biblical law, if you took his life when he was invading your home, you had a right to do that. He forfeited his life by um, in jeopardizing you like that. So it's not wrong for the disciples to have swords, according to the law of Moses and the teaching of Jesus, too. And there's a reason they have swords with them, actually, uh, in the first place. You might remember that Jesus actually told them to take swords with them when they started their great work of global evangelism. And this is really in Luke's Gospel at the Last Supper, his account of that. Luke 22.35, Jesus was contrasting their future Gospel work with the way it had been when they were with him going throughout Israel. But the future was going to be global, right? So he said to them, this is Luke 22.35, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no. Nothing. And he said to them, But now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. So God had provided for them all through Jesus' travels with his men through Israel, preaching the kingdom of God. But now they're going to need a, a safety plan as they go in the highways and byways across the Roman Empire and out into the wider world to bring the gospel, because it is dangerous to travel in those days. Um, you couldn't drive down a freeway. You had to go down Roman roads, which are well-built roads, but highwaymen could always be waiting behind the next bush. So people had protection, or they moved in groups with protection, and they uh, had weapons. So, And then Jesus has something kind of remarkable, uh, again, fulfilling an Old Testament text. So Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, he says, For I tell you, that which is... that." that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For that which refers to me 
has its fulfillment. And then somebody there at the table at the Last Supper said, well, here's two swords, and he says, that's enough. So bring them. That's why Peter had one and somebody else had one. And maybe other guys had one too. We don't. But there, Jesus is actually quoting from Isaiah 53, the great chapter of his atoning sacrifice. That's the most clear chapter in the Old Testament about the substitutionary atonement of Christ for sin, his death for sin. But um, that's, what it, that's what Jesus is quoting there. So there are two ideas regarding transgressors in Isaiah 53, 12. One is that Jesus will be called a transgressor. So Jesus' enemies are going to use probably Peter's brazen attack on law enforcement officers. They're going to use that against Jesus. They, they won't tell the whole story any more than the modern news tells all the story about a lot of incidents that happened. They won't mention Jesus saying, put your sword back into its place for all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. They'll leave that out when they're telling the story. So when they go back to the barracks or the, to the high priest or whatever, the story that's going to be told is, hey, one of these guys attacked one of our guys. These guys are criminal. That's what they're going to be saying. These guys are rabble-rousers. One of them was, they were armed. One of them took a swipe at one of our guys and took his ear off, Malchus. Now, it's not surprising that um, later, when Jesus is handed over to the Roman soldiers in the barracks, that they're going to enjoy mocking and scourging him without restraint, with actual malice, because he's, he's the head of a criminal band. I mean, that's the word that's banding about. So when it's time to flog him or scourge him, they go way beyond that. The crown of thorns, punching him in the face, uh, mocking him, putting robe on him, all of that stuff. So Peter was acting like a revolutionary, and that was sin. And it also numbered his master among the transgressors in the eyes of of some people in the government. So in Isaiah 53, 12, that verse says he will be called a transgressor. But it also says something really glorious. So I'm going to read the whole verse for you. It says, this is Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, talking about the Messiah, and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He's standing for the transgressors. He's going to intercede with God for them, for the sinners. So Jesus will pour himself out to death, particularly for the transgressor, the sinner. That's us. That's what's so wonderful about his sacrifice. So Jesus was correct in rebuking Peter for his use of the sword. Why? Because he was using the sword against government officers making an arrest. Peter tried to kill someone that was just doing his duty. He was acting like Antifa. So Peter's pulling the sword on, on transgressors, which would keep Jesus from dying for them. He's actually trying to prevent Jesus from dying for the transgressors. But that's what he's going to do. That's what he's there for. So however corrupt and sinful this government was, and it certainly was evil what the chief priests and the Pharisees were cooking up, and they brought in the Romans to be a part of it um, in terms of material support. But this is a government action by Israel's leaders. So that this behavior on their part falls under the category of persecution. So Christians are not to 
war against persecutors. Um, it's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual event. Remember these words from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10? Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely because of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How many prophets in the Old Testament put together a band of soldiers to fight against the king when they um, were going to persecute the prophets? They never did that. None of them did that. That's not the way spiritual men handle persecution. So suffering persecution for righteousness and for Christ is actually a cause for joy, not a cause for sword play. So persecu persecution serves a spiritual purpose and spiritual goals in Christ's kingdom are, are never attained by the sword. So in just a few hours, Jesus is going to stand before Pontius Pilate and he's going to say these words in John chapter 18, again, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. Well, Peter was actually going to try to do that. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. That's why Jesus shut Peter down. My kingdom is not of this realm. So until Christ returns in glory and power, his kingdom on earth is a spiritual kingdom. This has been forgotten at various times in church history and always to bad effect. The church cannot compel belief or obedience to spiritual truth uh, or agreement in the soul regarding spiritual things. And it is there that Christ seeks to rule on the inside, on the soul. So we can't compel that from people. Only he can do that. If you really believe that it, God's power is essential for a person to come to faith in him, then you know that a sword isn't going to help. You can make people say the right thing, but you can't change a heart. We can't change a heart or build a holy society by force. Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5, through 5, But we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing lifted up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You cannot take a thought captive with a weapon. It doesn't work like that with a, with a physical weapon. Spiritual warfare is what we do. Our weapons are those which can touch the soul. Our weapons are prayer. Our weapon is the word of God, the sword of the spirit. Our weapon is reason, our weapon are words, our weapon are loving deeds. And any spiritual issue has to be decided by these spiritual means, never the weapons of the world. So unlike national Israel, which was a kingdom, which had to have an army to defend itself, the church is a spiritual kingdom, and it must always serve God in a spiritual way. So, thinking about Peter, he had no basis at all for what he did. A, a violent outburst. Again, going contrary to what Jesus was uh, doing, permitting, and cooperating with. So let's look at it again. Matthew 26, uh, 52. Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, 
and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Good question, Jesus. The sword is not to be taken up against authorities. Most people that do that die that way, as revolutionaries have learned in every era. In fact, the Jews would find that out just one generation away from this event that's going on there when they tried to rebel against Rome, and the Romans wiped them off the face of the earth as a nation. They were scattered for another 1,900 years. And Jesus, he had angelic powers available to him if he wanted them. Peter's sword would not usher in the kingdom. Let's see, 12 legions of angels. Let's see, that would be somewhere around 60,000 angels. Do you think they could take care of Jesus if they were permitted to by God, if God wanted Jesus to be rescued and not go to the cross? you think 60,000 You know, one angel in the Old Testament killed 185,000 Assyrians, one angel in one evening. So 60,000 angels, they could do some damage. And Jesus says they're waiting. I bet they were chomping at the bit hoping they'd be asked, but that's not what he came for. So Jesus, again, is in control here. He's allowing himself to be taken because Scripture must be fulfilled and his redemptive work must be accomplished. So Jesus rebukes Peter in front of everyone, calms the situation, and submits to his arrest. Luke even tells us that he put Malchus's ear back on and healed him. So well, I don't know if he put it on, but he healed the wound. Um, then with complete dignity, Jesus shames the temple leaders for acting secretly when he operated daily in the temple. So it's okay to say when they're doing the wrong thing. So verse 55, it says, at that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. You see how every time he says, this is the fulfillment of scripture, this is the fulfillment of scripture, this is the fulfillment of scripture. So he doesn't fight, but he does remind his captors that they are the ones acting like men with something to hide. They're not being upfront and out in the open. They're the ones that are sneaking, if you will. So finally, Matthew tells us this. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So with Jesus submitting, uh, in bonds probably, the disciples run away. And he had told them they would, didn't he? Remember verse 33 of this chapter in Matthew 26? Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And then verse 35, Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because Peter does show this reckless courage in attacking Malchus, but now he's running off with everybody else once Jesus is in custody. They all do. They all run away. So what changed? Well, I think Jesus in custody uh, changes the dynamic for what they're feeling. Um, he submitted and he's being led away and now they don't have him anymore. And it seems like Peter's boldness is always tied to the presence of Jesus in his life. With Jesus, he can walk on water. With Jesus, he can take on an army. Because he's got Jesus at his back, I think he's thinking, right? But without Jesus, he can't even keep himself 
from denying that he knew him. And that's what's coming up for him. So, without Jesus, he's a weak man. With Jesus, he's a strong man. And the disciples need to learn that courage has to come from trusting that God is present even when you cannot see him, even when Jesus is taken away, that God is still in charge and still with them. You have to have faith that he is overseeing your circumstances, overseeing your life. So Jesus was not suffering from a lack of protection. He knew that these angelic armies were available and they were probably eager. So he was trusting God's plan and trusting God's purpose for him. And the disciples would someday get there, but they're not there yet. So they're scattering fulfilled prophecy as well. We talked about that before. Zechariah has a prophecy, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after the resurrection, after the ascension of Christ, they will find their courage, born of faith, and they will die for him more than willingly. Okay, let's bring this down to uh, practical, our, our lives, just a few things to remember. One thing is that the, the faithful church, faithful believers, will always be attacked by the world. That's just the way it is, in different ways. Uh, sometimes by persecution, sometimes by just mocking and, uh, you know, telling people they're foolish or they're Jesus freaks or uh, disassociating themselves from your life. Uh, it, it, the world can't help but be opposed to God. That's what it is inherently. And the more the gospel is clear to them, unless God is working in them, they're going to be disdainful and reject. At the same time, the church is going to be attacked, but at the same time, the church is always tempted to adopt the world's methods. That happens in every generation. I can't think of a generation in church history where that wasn't true. And when the church had power, the temptation was to use that power to achieve spiritual ends. That was a Puritan error. For all the greatness of the Puritans, when they actually achieved power, they misused it. And it really sunk their influence eventually. Our spiritual warfare, what did we say it was? Prayer, love, integrity, purity, argument, the word of God. The church has those weapons, and those weapons are forged in heaven. Fit for use beyond what you can imagine, because God accomplishes things with those weapons. Never lose sight of God's power. Don't claim power for yourself and say, I've got to make this happen. He can do it. You just have to be faithful to what he's told you to do. So he shapes and molds events. He directs the heart of the king. He can raise up nations and cast them down. He can make them grow. He can make them shrink. He can make them strong. He can make them weak. He does that all the time. But the kingdom of Christ is what? Not of this world. And we belong to that kingdom. Our warfare should be according to where that kingdom is and comes from, which is heaven. So we need to use heavenly means, not earthly ones. It, it's always sad to see the church adopt worldly methods. I mean, in the past, it might have been government power that the church claimed or used to impose its will on other people. Today, it might be manipulative marketing strategies or tricks, you know, to get people in church or you, silly things to excite them and get people just all buzzing about churches, though church was like the main thing, not Christ, you know. It's always sad to see that. 
But think about how God accomplished salvation for us. Who would have thought he would have used an arrest at night by a traitor to achieve salvation? An illegal trial rigged with liars. Uh, a politically motivated decision to put an innocent man to death. All of that is coming. Who would have thought that such deeds would lead to the reconciliation of sinners to a holy God? God is amazing in how he plans things out. He does things his way. God's ways are unique and marvelous. Jesus entrusted himself to God's way. And he won our salvation. So let's do the same thing. We will further his kingdom when we do it the way he wants it done. That's the simplest truth you can walk away with today. God's work, God's way. Finally, just remember our Savior's strength and dedication. You know, in the garden, he sought another way to save mankind, sweating drops of blood over what he was facing. But there wasn't another way. So as soon as there wasn't another way, he's walking confidently, stepping forth confidently, looking out for his men, letting himself be arrested, accepting the bonds of oppression and injustice that was imposed on him. But in every way, fulfilling the will of God and doing the work of God that God had assigned to him. That's our model. Let's do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, your wisdom is far above ours, so we have to trust it. We ask you for help in doing that. Give us faith to trust in your word, trusting the model that we have in our Lord Christ, the plan you have for the church that the Bible lays out. May we glorify you always, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, now Jesus is going to face a series of legal trials, and we'll start looking at those next week.